Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I chat to George Eaton and Stephen Bush about Labour Conference and what we hope to see in Jeremy Corbyn's speech. Then we chat a little bit about Labour's class of 2015. After that, John Elledge, Barbara Speed and I discuss whether or not it's time to start caring about the US election in 2016. Labour MPs are about to decamp to Brighton for their annual conference. The Lib Dem conference in Bournemouth, I think it's fair to say, was not a headline grabber. But I'm joined by George Eaton and Stephen Bush to discuss Labour. First of all, I'm going to kick off with you, George, because you had an interview with Jeremy Corbyn, all hail, this week, in which he talked a bit about a kind of differing approach he's taking on differing policy questions. So on things like Trident, for example, he said he's you know, happy to leave it to you know, the will of, of, of activists and how they vote a conference. On the benefit cap, however, he's decided that his word is, is law. Um, do you expect that, that conference is going to be a more decision-making body than it has been previously this year? Absolutely. So throughout his campaign, Jeremy Corbyn talked about how he wanted to democratise the Labour Party's policy-making structures so that motions passed at conference would actually mean something again. And in the past... Um, Previous Labour leaders have, have disregarded them. And that means some sort of big flashpoints. The first will be Trident uh, on the Monday. It's if, if the motion is approved, which is likely to be for, for debate, then activists will have the, the chance to vote on that. It's very hard to say how that vote will go because some of the unions are opposed to Trident. Some of the conference delegates um, who who were sent, um, who were decided before the outcome of the Labour contest may not necessarily take a take a Corbyn line on this. Um, but, Maria Eagle, who's the now yeah. shadow defence, she's 
pro Trident, isn't she? So this is, I mean, partly is is this a kind of way of of Corbyn of saying, well, I'm actually more in touch with the membership than MPs are. This is my way of of reaffirming that this is my mandate, even if MPs disagree with me. Absolutely. I mean, for for Jeremy Corbyn, nuclear disarmament is one of his uh, big causes, and it's not one he would want to compromise on. But a lot of MPs expect him to ultimately offer a free vote on the issue to, to them in the Commons. So you could have a very odd situation where the MPs have one position, uh, the conference has a different position, and um, and and then it's uh, Labour has a policy in its manifesto, which the majority of its MPs, or certainly a significant part of the shadow cabinet, don't support. And Stephen, what are you most looking forward to about Labour Party conference? Apart from the New Statesman Party, which will be banging. Apart from the New Statesman Party, uh, so a distant second. To the, I, I, I am actually intrigued uh, as to how it will work because. There are lots of advantages to letting members set policy at conference. One of the reasons why I Lib Dem conference is, yes, it wasn't very newsworthy, but it's a more vibrant and kind of more um, engaging affair. Also, I think because of all the singing that they do, they seem to do like a lot of glee club and Um, karaoke and stuff. But one of the things they do is, one of the things they do that's very clever, which Labour did not do when it used to let conference make policy, is because making policy is quite a fractious occasion. They, the rest of the Lib Dem conference is effectively designed around the fact that you have a fight in every conference session, but then at lunchtime it's like, go and hear Nick Clegg speak. There's a Doctor Who screening. Let's all go to a fringe on electoral reform. We, these are all sort of issues pretty much every Lib Dem can unify around the fact they like STV and Doctor Who. Um, the Labour Party has never been very good at um, finding ways and it can disagree without it becoming water the knife. And the other problem is, once you give policy to conference, the main way you make a splash in the conference speech, if you're the leader, is to announce a policy. Jeremy Corbyn can't really do that now, so I'm the main thing I'm looking forward to is, is whether or not he can give a good speech, given the limitations he's placed on himself. The fact he's only been leader for two weeks, as apparently there isn't even a draft of it yet. This is like, you know, politics with the difficulty level turned up to 11. So. George, what do you want to hear in Jeremy Corbyn's speech, what is, I mean, we've had lots of discussions about how difficult his first week was, what a hostile media climate he's facing, the fact that his first speech at that special conference was a speech to his supporters rather than a prime minister in waiting kind of type speech. What what does he have to do? Mm, well, I think what he has to do is speak to the country, which I think even some supporters would acknowledge he struggled to do in his uh, acceptance speech. He has to offer sort of vision for the country beyond opposition to the Tories, beyond opposition to austerity. So how does he want to restructure the economy? What is his vision for public services? Um, what is his agenda for, for devolution? Um, he set up a constitutional convention to look at uh, the makeup of the, the UK's different bodies and, and how does he envisage that playing out? And then he does need, as, as Stephen said, a bit of a rabbit. He does need something which is going to make some headlines the next day. Um, a distinctive policy. And I, th- I think he was right to, to go with rail renationalisation early on because that is um, a policy of his which has support across the electorates and which um, even even some Conservative voters support. Um, obviously, it would make sense for him to talk about the NHS. That's another issue on which his instincts are close to those of the public. But in terms of Labour winning an election, his, his biggest challenge is obviously economic trust and... That is that is that is a huge challenge, but it's not one that it's not one that can be ducked. So, in some ways, this is first conference. Given how divided the party has been, given how little time he's had to prepare for it, um, he could he could play it safe. But um, that's not going to win you an election. 
Um, and Stephen, we have I did have this weekend uh, an, an email in from a, from a listener who says that it, for her, um, she finds us all slightly too Corbyn sceptic. Um, and I wondered, from your point of view, as somebody who's probably not a natural Corbyn supporter, what do you think his strength is? If you were advising him to build on his strengths, what would you identify those as? Um, he has a couple of strengths, um, which is borne out in the very early polling. And he's basically Miliband on steroids. People think that he has a strong idea of what it is he wants to do, that he's very sincere, that he's in touch with um, the concerns of ordinary people, um, and then he's and crucially has a, f- a fourth, maybe fourth. I mean, I've, I've lost count now. Uh, but another advantage Ed didn't have, which is they think he's authentic. He has that Nigel Farage quality that people think he is who he says he is. Um, so he can build out from those things. The the problem, not to call out our listeners or anything, the problem is it's very easy to talk about what people's strengths are, but you have to identify your weaknesses. Uh, and and try to get rid of them. You know, the Conservatives, for example, were hugely aware that they had a problem that Cameron is poshy McPoshington. And that's why he does all those things going, oh, I love Frozen, I love a box set, oh, the the kids keep singing Let It Go. All of that is just about gently taking the edges off his biggest weakness. There is... I'm not... I don't necessarily think that Jeremy Corbyn can't deal with his weaknesses, but he won't deal with his weaknesses by his supporters sending angry Twitter messages or him saying in interviews, don't worry, I'll target non-voters. Well, let's quickly, before we talk about move on to the next bit, talk about this non-voters thing, because we had some polling in from, from Peter Kellner of, of YouGov that looked exactly at you know who are Jeremy Corbyn's potential supporters, who are his current supporters, and how do they differ from, from kind of Labour supporters. And I thought there were several really striking things in there. You know, the number of Corbyn supporters who describe themselves as very or fairly left-wing is 81%. Um, firm current Labour voters, that's only 40%. Potential Labour voters, only 15% of them describe themselves as very or fairly left-wing. Um, there were some other things, you know, that this is <laughs> one of the things you pointed out is that 4% of, of Corbyn supporters think that George Osborne would make a better prime minister than Jeremy Corbyn, which is a, a truly baffling. Although I kind of attribute that. There's a great bit in the Sex, Lies and Ballots, I think, where they asked people to how confident they were in a, maid, in a minister that they'd made up. And 15% said that he was doing a very good job, but they really liked it because people are notoriously reluctant to, to admit that they might not have all the information at hand. But only 67% of Corbyn supporters, I thought this was the most interesting, said they want the government to do far more to help the poor and tax everyone else more to pay for this help, which I thought was... And people were very... Actually, I had some responses on Twitter of people who were upset and said that that was a leading question. And I said, well, to me, that's what the point of a progressive taxation system is, is you say, if you've got a little bit more, you can afford to help a little bit more. And people under, you know, between now 10 going up to £12,000 don't pay any income tax. So they, they won't be through income tax paying to help other people and I was quite I was quite surprised I mean George when you saw those those findings what was your initial reaction to them well my initial reaction was uh, Jeremy the voters most voters are in in a different place to to Jeremy Corbyn supporters and Jeremy Corbyn supporters think in very ideological terms most voters don't Um, most voters uh, judge a party based on its leader based on whether they trusted on the economy based on whether they trusted on on public services and then the overall image of the party um, so those things matter matter a lot, a lot more than than policy in some ways but the, the tax one is interesting because I think it's a bit of a, a post crash phenomenon where it's become almost politically unacceptable even for anyone on the centre left to advocate higher taxes on anyone apart from the top one percent mm. 
Um, so I think this idea that well, people's people's wages did fall and, and, and still haven't fully recovered in some cases. But it's interesting, and Jeremy Corbyn himself wrote a piece on pensions for the Daily Telegraph before his election, in which he said you know, the basic rate of tax used to be 25%, it's now only 20%. We need to have a, a discussion about this, which was notable in that politicians so rarely go there now. I mean, Labour, when it was in, in office, raised national insurance to pay for the NHS. And there was a debate before the last election about le- whether Labour should try and pull that off again to have a clear... A sustainable source of funding for the health service and also to to reassure people that it could it could make the sums that up but it was decided that's no-go territory because of the squeezed middle because of the, the, tax the post shell. crash the yeah. tax bombshell um but it's a good question just how are we going to fund public services in, in in the future if it's only politically acceptable to raise taxes on on the top one percent and Stephen, to pick up that point about about non-voters there is this idea that non-voters are a reservoir of die-hard lefties and if they can merely be sort of tapped into but that's not what the evidence suggests unfortunately is it no in the british electoral survey when people were asked to place parties on a left-right scale and themselves on a left-right scale non-voters placed labor to the left of where they were um there are some demographics which favor labor which do not turn out young people people who live in cities ethnic minorities there are strong arguments for why you should try and increase turnout from all of those groups for kind of civic engagement reasons. However, for example, in where I live, if, if ethnic minorities turned out at the same rate as uh, non-ethnic minorities, Diane Abbott would have an even bigger majority. But Labour doesn't need Diane Abbott to have a bigger majority to win the next election. The flip side is you also turn out the other side's voters who don't bother to vote. Um, Obama is kind of the classic example of this. He had huge turnout spikes, which allowed him to win, uh, I'm going to confuse my Carolinas, either North or South Carolina. Turnout went up by eight points. Turnout in Arkansas went up by 15 points, and he lost that by a bigger margin than John Kerry had uh, the election before. And And Clinton had won that state, because basically people who were inspired by voting for the first African-American president, were motivated by fear of a black president in other parts of the United States. And in America, it's easier to benefit from non-voters because they live in different places. In marginal seats in Britain, basically, you have a fairly accurate soil sample of what Britain looks like in most of them. So if you increase your turnout, you're increasing turnout among your opponent's voters as well. You've got to convince... You basically... If you, can, if you do a good job convincing the other side's voters, a lot of the time you'll get some non-voters as well, and that's great for reasons which have nothing to do with winning an election, uh, but are just good for society, at least in my opinion. However, if your response to that poll is to go, don't worry, we'll target non-voters, your response to that poll is to say, basically, don't worry, we will definitely lose the 2020 election. Well, on that um, <laughs> slightly um, apocalyptic note, I just want to move on to talk about a feature that we've all contributed to, which is the idea of a class of 2015. What does Labour's 2015 intake look like? Um, George, you interviewed Stephen Kinnock, um, as the surname suggests, the son of Neil. He's got a, I mean, he's got a very interesting background and doesn't, where do you think he sees himself on, in relation to, in, you know, in the spectrum of the party? Mm. So I asked him, of course, because his father was obviously, they identified with uh, the soft left of the party. And he said, I reject those labels. Um, you know, I have. I believe that um, you know, we should cut income tax actually and, and shift the burden of taxation towards assets. Um, you know, but he also has. Um, he's a, he's a modernizer in terms of attitudes towards public service reform. So 
he doesn't want to put himself in one box, which given how divided Labour is at the moment, is quite smart. Um, but he did describe himself as a radical and said, I'm a radical in the true sense of the word, which is etymologically, it means someone who looks at the roots, someone who goes to the roots of an issue rather than rather than just the symptoms. And he's obviously someone who is always going to attract attention because of his surname. But I am impressed by him as, as, a, as a, a speaker, as a, as a thinker. Um, I think he will be someone to watch. And uh, Stephen, you, you spoke to Wes Streeting, who is one of the sort of rare success stories of somebody who was put in a very difficult target seat, Ilford North, ended up with a small three-figure majority in, you know, when much easier to win seats didn't go Labour. He would have been in the old days, I guess, a, a Blairite, but I know we're now, by pain of death now, not allowed to use that word, but... You know, is he somebody who sees there being a, a point? You know, who does he work with in the party? Where you know, is he is basically is his career kind of over before it's already begun because his faction is not in the ascendancy. Um, I mean, Wes is genuinely quite collegiate. Uh, he is good. He ha- He is good at working with people across uh, divides. He does have the slight problem. It's an incredibly marginal seat. Um, you would assume that with boundary changes it will perversely get a bit safer because it will gain some some Labour voters. So, I mean, a bigger problem for him is can he hold his seat if the numbers for Corbyn don't improve and uh, the action taken to improve Corbyn's standing uh, is not taken. That's probably more of a problem for him. Uh, but he does sort of have this slight problem that he's kind of an, an outrider to a movement which doesn't have any... In-riders. In-riders, <laughs> yeah. Um, but... But ultimately, you know, there aren't very many MPs and there aren't even very many Labour MPs who went from being on free school meals, raised by a single mum, all the way to Cambridge and becoming an MP. And so I suspect there will be some kind of uh, role for him. And he hasn't been one of the kind of, you know, obviously he didn't vote for Jeremy Corbyn, but he hasn't been one of the people who's been trashing Jeremy and attacking his voters. So um, it may be that he's able to survive and come again. One of the things I thought was interesting, I mean, we obviously made our own kind of subjective selection, was that we ended up with a, a, a few people, so Kat Smith, uh, Clive Lewis, Kate Osmore, who were big Jeremy Corbyn fans. And, George, my impression is that you know, Corbyn had, has quite a following in the, in the 2015 intake. Yes, actually, had the 2015 intake not been so left-wing, I don't think he could have made it onto the ballot. That was always the problem in the past for, for people who tried before, like, John McDonnell, who's now, of course, shadow chancellor. And the new intake do will have um, an, impo- an important role to play if things do get as, as tough for him as, as some predict, because he does need people who will go out and, and defend him in the media. And Cat Smith and Clive Lewis were quite prominent during his campaign and are both now shadow ministers. And so although the divisions in the, in the, in the parliamentary party so haven't quite uh, erupted yet that people do try to to um, be friendly and, and civil towards one another. I mean, that, that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Could start to change if it looks as if uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn's in real trouble. 
Well, one, yes, talking of people being civil and cordial, um, I mean, one of my interviewees was, was Jess Phillips, who famously had a, a, a ding-dong with uh, Diane Abbott in mm. the first PLP meeting. She's certainly very outspoken. I would recommend her as, a, as a, an interesting person to follow on Twitter. But uh, actually, I think the, one, the person who most surprised me um, for non-political reasons was talking to Thangam Debonair, who's the new MP in Bristol West, because she, um, she discovered a lump in her breast within two weeks of being um, elected as an MP. She said she hadn't been taking care of her health on the campaign trail and then has gone straight into, she was diagnosed with um, stage two breast cancer and has gone straight into chemotherapy, which basically one week in three, she, she can't really do anything. But what was interesting about that was that how much stuff she can do as an MP without needing to be in Westminster. And that was something I hadn't really ever thought about. So she, can, she can't submit oral questions, but she can do written questions. She can't represent herself in debates. But obviously she can get through constituency casework. And obviously she can still write blogs, she can still tweet, she can still kind of go to things that are in her local area. But I thought that was a, I thought that was quite a, an, a touching story, really, actually, because I think it's something that people kind of forget that MPs have very normal everyday struggles in their life too. And for me, the other really interesting theme that came out is how many of the people that we interviewed, and we, you know, they weren't all London and South East by any means. How many of them brought up housing as a really big issue? I mean. Keir Starmer, who's the new MP for Hoban and St Pancras, said that every other person in his constituency surgery has got some kind of a housing problem. Sometimes those are related to immigration. Sometimes they're purely about you know not being able to afford social housing, having been kicked out of private rents or whatever. But it does seem that that's something that Jeremy Corbyn has done quite well, actually. Is he, so he's identified a shadow ministerial team about housing. But it's something that the 2015 intake, who are quite young, who are quite diverse, probably, I would imagine, we were having this conversation earlier, some of them might even end up, might still be in the private rented sector. I mean, this is something we talked about when we talked about Mari Black and the you know some of the younger SNP MPs for the first time ever. Instead of you know a bias towards landlords, you now have actually more people coming to the Commons who are, have an experience of being a renter. Um, were there any other trends that either of you identified in the in the 2015 intake? That all it, it's a very interesting intake. I mean, it's it's true that it's to the left of of past intakes. But you do have uh, more modernising, more, more moderate MPs in there, such as such as West, West Streeting, such as uh, Conor McGinn, who used to be an advisor to the Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary, Vernon Coker. And so it's 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 not quite true to to suggest that all of the all of the new MPs are on are on the hard left of the party. I thought the interesting thing to me, at least, was only something I realised once we'd done all of them, is actually it is a. Uh, there aren't very many spads in there, but it is actually a very Red Princey um, intake. Kate Ozemore is the daughter of Martha Ozemore, who is was a sort of huge and influential figure on the party's left. Um, Ruth Smith's uh, mother was an assistant general secretary of a trade union. Um, Stephen Kinnock, obviously, is Stephen Kinnock. Um, yes, I suspect that given Keir Stan was named after Keir Hardy, his family are quite were quite, quite political, quite labory, yeah. Um, which, I mean, to be honest, I personally don't have a particular problem with it. I don't think the two years I spent working in a shop made me a better journalist. Uh, I think being a journalist has made me a better journalist. But, you know, I don't think there's a problem with uh, professional politicians. But I did find it interesting purely because um, it speaks to a big problem for the left, not in terms of how it gets people in as MPs, although that's a problem too, which is and it's very easy to give people... Uh, more money or more advantages and there are lots of people who are not from kind of gilded backgrounds but it is much harder to work out how we redistribute soft capital and there's a lot of soft political capital 
within that new intake and it's how you get genuine outsiders into parliament it's very easy for the tories because the outsiders they want uh, tend to be people who are at the end of their careers who have a lot of money and success behind them like anna subri very impressive politician but it's much easier for someone in their 50s to give it all up and become an MP. It's quite hard uh, to find your next party leader that way. Yes, that was something that came up when I spoke to people from my motherhood piece, actually, was that there were several people behind the scenes in the Tory party who said they really wanted to target 50-something women who'd had a really good career in business, had you know built up, weren't actually now not too worried about the money, their kids were gone to university, and those people would they thought would make really good MPs. But again, that again, that comes back a bit to the, the problem that you have of uh, of MP salaries being what most people would consider an excellent salary, but not compared to, you know, uh, a, a GP or, a, you know, even heavens forfend, a banker, is that it's, it's, it's quite attractive to people who've already made their money elsewhere. But it's not as attractive to an incredibly bright graduate who could do all kinds of other things as well, particularly with the kind of hatred now of people who kind of parachuted in spads. Um, Well, I'm sure we'll be hearing far more from lots of the class of 2015, but for the moment, thank you, Stephen and George. Well, next year there is a US presidential election, but the big problem for Brits is, should you care yet? John Ellidge, our City Metric editor, has argued that you should. Um, Barbara Speed, I'm going to say you probably don't care yet. Um, I medium care in that I follow a few people on Twitter, but that's been really the extent of it yet. John, first of all, outline where, when, I mean, the the big kind of starting gun really is the, the primaries at the beginning of next year, isn't it? Until then, can we just opt out? I mean, the difficulty is that the, the US presidential election has gone for so long that the race has already been going on for since what seems like the late 19th century. Um, but nothing really happens until February 1st when you get uh, the Iowa caucus, which is followed just over a week later by the New Hampshire primary. Those are the first sort of actual um, electoral battles at which the 40 or 50 people currently competing to be the Republican nominee for um, President of the United States in 2016, actually, uh, the voters actually get to tell us their their preferences among them. I think the Republican field is really fascinating because obviously the way it's been shaped up is that everyone has sort of expected that Hillary will be the Democratic nominee since about 2009 or something like that. Mm. I mean, certainly throughout Obama's second term. She's obviously now being challenged by Bernie Sanders from the left. But um, you watch these debates that they have, um, and it's just like it's just the, uh, like a wall of, of of white men, and then Ben Carson, who's the only black candidate, and Carly Fiorina, who's the only woman candidate. And you just think, I feel kind of sad for all the other candidates who are that guy. No, that guy. No, the other. No, obviously the one that's not Trump. No, that guy though. Um, how when, distinctive are they, John? Not very is the problem. I mean, there is a reason that everybody is focusing so much on on everybody's favourite. Um, slightly crazy property tycoon Donald Trump which is he's by far the most interesting you probably wouldn't want him anywhere near the red button but he is the one who's coming out with the most interesting sentences and a lot of the others are are a little bit interchangeable um well let's stop and let's do let's give Barbara as our kind of designated normal human in this situation how many of the Republican nominees could you name at this point probably two 
there are like, 15 to yeah, have exactly. out. Yeah, exactly. But I think that also, I mean, they probably, what's so amazing about America really is that they have these unbelievably long campaigns and yet people still care. Like, I think that in the short campaign here, I think people in Britain struggle to care for the entire length of it. So actually, to hand it to the candidates, if any of them have stuck out so far, they just, deserve a round of applause. think about how we always started to go a little bit mad with the Labour leadership campaign going on for four months. And yeah. US presidentials <laughs> go on for, you know, two years effectively. Exactly. Imagine amazing. Stephen Bush after a two-year Labour leadership campaign. Imagine the American Stephen Bush. That's already a great, <laughs> a great prospect. Um, the thing I think is really fascinating as well is that you, you don't have a dynamic like you had last time. So last time it was Obama going for a second term. Everyone thought, confident, you know, he's pretty confident it would take, you know, somebody is going to have to split, basically put up somebody to kind of get beaten by him. So they had this whole primary season where it felt all the way through it. Everybody was going like, yeah, right. You've had your, you know, like, get everyone, get all the, yeah, get all the nutters on. Come on, let's see what they got to say. And then we'll, we all know that we're going to pick um, Mitt Romney at the end of it. That doesn't seem to have happened quite the same way for Jeb Bush, who was who's been lined up as that kind of. Once everybody's kind of had their primary fun, and we've heard from all the people who want anyone who has an abortion to be, you know, shot, and for gun licenses to be issued to, you know, fetuses at birth. Um, then we're kind of everyone will turn around and go for for Jeb Bush because he's the establishment candidate. But that hasn't that hasn't worked for Jeb exclamation mark has it? I I think the problem for Jeb Bush is he's very much the Yvette Cooper of this race. In I'm that sure he he's is Jeb, we can. Isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> but he, he's the establishment candidate. He's probably one of the more sensible ones on the bill. There is a sort of family connection there, and I think everyone was, as you say, expecting that at some point the field would sort of line up behind him. Um, What's actually happening is that there is a general, it feels quite global actually, sense of frustration and outrage with the failure of, of political systems. And people want to try something different. And say what you like about Donald Trump, he's definitely different. That is a diplomatic way of putting it. I do feel a bit sorry. I confess to feeling sorry for, for Jeb Bush. Although I feel bad because calling him Jeb Bush, because doesn't Jeb stands for, I mean, the B in Jeb is for Bush, right? I, I think he's, he's, like, he's very much like Job from, from Arrested Development, isn't he? <laughs> um, so anyway, I'm just going to call him Jeb. But, you know, he is a, a much better candidate than George W. Bush. I feel like if I was him, I would be consumed by bitterness. Like Both in kind of dem- in interesting demographic terms. So, you know, he speaks Spanish. He's got a Hispanic wife. He's been a governor of a big state, by all accounts, did that pretty well. Um, you know, he he's, he's kind of a decent... You know, if you're going to have to pick a Bush brother, really, to be president, you would pick him, I feel. And yet he seems quite chipper about the whole thing. Well, I, I think maybe nobody can quite believe they will push come to shove, pick Trump. Um, I mean, it would be a... I mean, you think that Jeremy Corbyn's success was an upset. Donald Trump getting the Republican nomination would be sort of orders of magnitude greater than that, I think. There's a fascinating piece in The New Yorker a couple of weeks ago by Evan Osnos, um, who uh, who was originally following white nationalists around and then ended up kind of veering off and, and covering the Trump campaign. And some of the stuff that people say is really fascinating about him. So they make this criticism that they think all of um, politics is... You know, politicians are all in the pockets of the money men. And therefore, him being a billionaire means that he's less in hoc to kind of... He's much better able to represent the kind of the common man. Yeah, you cut out the middleman. Yeah, the exactly. So he's, yeah. Yeah, at least the only... Yes, okay, so he's incredibly rich and has no idea how we live. But he made his own money and he's not... You know, that's not anyone else's money. We at least know that it's, that it's him. Which is... Yeah, and there's also this whole... I mean, 
obviously I highly doubt Donald Trump has spent very much time listening to Jeremy Corbyn's speeches, but there is a funny way in which when they, both of them talk about politics in a fairly abstract way, you can't really tell them apart sometimes. That you that they say the same phrases, they say kind of I was struck politics, by that in this, different in this new, profile that there is yeah. that, that populism is a is obviously a really potent force and it can be just mm. as potent to one for right wing politicians as left wing politicians because yeah. you do hear a lot of, you know, there's an establishment, it's all sewn up, you know, I'm an outsider um, you know, I'm going to speak honestly. But then mm. almost every, you know, actually Obama's campaign, I mean, the whole idea of, of every, you know, every campaign now is run on a kind of I'm an outsider, kind of I'm going to bring about change, I'm going to smash the system. John McCain was, you know, a lot of his campaign rested on the fact that he was supposedly a kind of outsider and a maverick and, you know, that kind of thing, despite the fact he'd been a senator for donkey's years. Um, if you had to, if you had to put money on it, John, would you say that you think that Trump will end up being the Republican nominee? I don't actually feel like I can answer that question. Um, okay, what about will Hillary Clinton be the Democratic nominee? I think she probably will, but she's facing a stronger challenge than anyone had expected. Um, as you say, Bernie Sanders is is who's. Um, I think he's one of the few politicians in the US who would actually describe himself as a socialist, is running quite a successful insurgency. There have been isolated polls, just a couple, but they have come out showing him ahead of Clinton in the Democratic field. Um, she also has this bizarre thing of her emails hanging over her head when they keep saying mm -hmm. that maybe they've managed to recover some of the ones that were deleted. And, and I think that her record as Secretary of State, I mean, this is, again, this is another kind of interesting facet of... Of politics is that if you have held a really big job in politics before, it's almost now in some ways a, a hurdle because you will have made enemies, you will have made really big judgment calls that people can. That, I mean, I, I will cheerfully confess that I don't really understand the ins and outs of, of the conspiracy theories around Benghazi and what happened there, but that is a big motive. And you know, you repeat those kind of things enough, people begin to think there was something there. And she is hated. I mean, the Republicans absolutely hate the Clintons in that sort of, you know, irrational, firming at the mouth kind of way. Um, I also think it's worth bearing in mind that you will very rarely lose money betting on misogyny. Um, one of the things I, something I noticed recently when Sanders was kind of gaining on her was um, Tim Montgomery, the, the uh, British right-wing commentator, was tweeting, right, this is getting silly now, it's time for Joe Biden, the current vice president, to get into the race. And it read very much as if he was saying, right, you've had your fun, but now it's time for the serious candidate to get involved. Um, but I think that's really fascinating because, you know, I love, we had Nikki Wolf on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he and I both have a sort of sneaking tender affection for Joe Biden because Joe Biden just seems like he's having quite a lot of, of fun. Um, but he's got exactly the same problems that you've got with, with Clinton. You know, you can associate him with everything that people don't like about things that the Obama administration have done. He is actually, Clinton is phenomenally controlled in what she says, whereas Joe Biden is got a touch of the Prince Philips about him, um, which, you know, you can either find charming or you can find a, a liability. He's not, in, by any means, uh, you know, a kind of silver bullet to arrive that will solve all the problems if you don't think that Hillary Clinton's got what it takes. He's also, I mean, by the time the next president uh, takes the oath of office, Joe Biden will be 74 years old. And people mention Clinton's age anyway, which would seem that it's even more misogynistic if you're then saying, well, let's have this older guy in instead. Yeah, we think this woman's too old. Yeah. Bring on the older guy. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the odd thing about Biden is I don't think anyone, until quite recently, even considered the possibility he might run. It's just, you know, it's quite normal for the sitting vice president to be the presumptive nominee uh, when the president stands down. Um, 
that wasn't really expected with Biden or, or in fact, Dick Cheney before him. Well, that's what I was going to say, is that Biden has always been, the model has always been that he was a Cheney-style vice president whose attraction really was that he wasn't sort of sitting there scheming um, for, the, for the top job all the time. He was quite happy to be kind of a complementary force to Obama. So it would be interesting to see him pivot on that and, and turn around. I'm going to draw this to a close, but I'm just going to say that as soon as you said New Hampshire, I thought, I'm going to rewatch The West Wing. And that made me think, I'm sad because this is one of the greatest problems of British politics is that it is now ruled by a generation of people. Well, certainly this was always the problem in, in Ed Miliband era Labour, a group of people who were had grown up watching the West Wing and basically wondered why everything couldn't be like the West Wing and they couldn't have, you know, let Bartlett be Bartlett, insert, let Corbyn be Corbyn, let Miliband be Miliband. Let Ed Balls be Ed Balls. So, uh, on when you that... start using real politicians' names, you kind of see why it doesn't work, don't you? <laughs> Let Angela Eagle be Angela Eagle, <laughs> goddammit. Um, and on that note, thank you very much, John and Barbara. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.